Gracious God, we thank you for your word to us. That word that meets us where we are, enters into our lives and offers us healing, hope, and transformation. Lord, may we hear a living word from Jesus this day and come away changed. We pray all this in and through his name. Amen. I've always been fascinated by stained glass windows in churches. Now, a major part of this probably has to do with the fact that I'm a preacher's kid twice over. Uh, Between the list of different churches each of my parents served in, worshipped at, or visited, I kind of lost count how many different church sanctuaries I was in growing up. Among other things, walking through the sanctuary and looking at the windows gave me something to do when I was more than ready to go. And uh, Dad had just one more person to talk to, or Mom had just one more thing to do before the drive home. These days, when I have the time, I, I still love walking through an unfamiliar sanctuary, taking in the different images and pausing to think what the choice of subject matter says about the church. In some churches, both the choice of image and their location in the sanctuary has been carefully planned out. This is especially true of Catholic and Anglican churches. In many other churches, though, the image is chosen and their location can be a bit more haphazard. Unless the church has had a lot of financial resources, there's a good chance the stained glass windows only went in uh, when a donor came forward. And that the choice of subject and location was largely up to them. Here at St. Andrews, though, this sanctuary was built in 1875. The stained glass only went in, or started to go in, in the 1970s. At some point, I'd like to do a little research to find out if there was a plan when the stained glass windows started going in. Since the first six or seven uh, all have a similar style and look like they were done by the same artisan. They also seem to have been installed in a sequence, starting with the, the Christmas window there and moving along uh, all the way up to the windows facing Sulphur Springs, except for one at the back. But the one that's always struck me since I came here to St. Andrews is the third one, the one that's right there in the middle. I'll, uh, I'll throw it up on the screen for, so everybody doesn't have to crane their necks. As I've mentioned a few times before, the figure on the left is St. Andrew, who you can always identify in Christian art by the large X-shaped cross that he's holding. Early church tradition held that when Andrew was martyred by the Romans, he felt unworthy to be crucified on the same kind of cross as Jesus. And so the soldiers made his cross in the shape of an X. Now the choice of St. Andrew alone would make this window significant to this church. But to drive the point home, whoever designed it also placed a burning bush in that circular window at the top. The burning bush from the story of Moses has been an icon of Scottish Presbyterianism since the 16th century and has been the primary symbol of the Presbyterian Church in Canada since its foundation. So it's likely that the donor, whose name uh, is listed there as Hannah Hughes, wanted this window to communicate something important about who this Presbyterian Church called St. Andrews was, or at least who it's called to be. All of this makes the subject on the right side of the window quite significant. And this is, of course, an image of Jesus. 
But as I mentioned back when we were doing the Alpha talks in worship, this is a very particular image of Jesus. It's adapted from a famous painting by the English artist uh, Holman Hunt, uh, one large copy of which hangs in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. It's called The Light of the World. And its imagery is drawn from the passage that we read from the book of Revelation today. There we hear Jesus say, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, they with me. Because of Hunt's painting and his interpretation of it, this verse is often taken in isolation. And taken as an invitation that Jesus offers to an individual to come to faith by welcoming him into the door of our lives. Now this is an important message and Jesus does call us as individual people to respond to him in faith. And welcome him as our Lord and the one who saves us. Yet when we look at the full context of this verse in Revelation we find that this is a message not given so much to individuals but to a church. In Revelation, Jesus stands and knocks at the door of a church. Now this makes the placement of the image of Jesus knocking in this window beside St. Andrew rather interesting. If we read the window literally, Jesus is knocking at the door of this church, this St. All this really started to come to me a couple years ago when the session, the elders and myself began working on a new vision statement to guide St. Andrews once we came to the end of our accessibility project. Over a number of months, we went through the various documents that the church had worked on over the years. As we did, one thing that we came to see was that St. Andrews was already being guided in many ways by an existing vision, that of the accessibility project itself. And was summed up by this image of opening doors. And so we took time to reflect and pray on how this might connect with and apply with the whole life of the church. After two roundtable discussions, we framed our new vision as opening doors to Jesus, to our neighbors, to go out into the world. The last two points came came naturally from the building project. Our our newly accessible building with its bright and open glass lobby was designed to welcome our local community to our church and inspire us to look through those windows and go out through the doors into the community to serve. What about that first one, opening doors to Jesus? Well, one thing that came up repeatedly in earlier attempts to develop A vision for St. Andrews was a desire for this church to be as Christ-centered as possible. To be a community of faith built entirely around Jesus. And given that this desire, we made it the first point of our new vision. We will open our doors more fully to Jesus so that we may grow in faith and faithfulness to his way. When our neighbors come through our doors, we want the presence of Jesus to be unmistakable. Now this might raise a question. Isn't every Christian church centered on Jesus? Isn't that something that just comes with being a church? Well, the answer to that is both yes and no. 
For a community of faith to be Christian in any meaningful way, it must be centered on Jesus. But the reality is that this is often easier said than done. Well, as Christians, we might want our focus to be on Jesus and for Jesus to be at the heart of all that we do. It's easy for other things, even other good things, to draw the focus away from Jesus and for us to build our community around them instead of him. And the opening chapters of the book of Revelation actually provide some very helpful guidance on this issue. Now, Revelation opens with a clear description of what it's about. It can be a bit of an intimidating book, but it helps to know how to read it. And this message is, is quite straightforward. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. What follows then, is a message from the risen and living Jesus given to a Christian prophet to share with the church, a gift to the church. But it's a message that's not just given to the church as a whole. It's actually given initially to seven particular church communities. John writes to the seven churches in the province of Asia. The region the Romans called Asia is what we now call Turkey. John writes to churches located in seven major cities there. And the main body of the book contains a connected series of visions that pull back the curtain on what's happening in the world right now so we can understand it in light of the great promise that God has made to transform this world, to set it right, to make all things new one day and wipe every tear from every eye. Before we get to this big picture, John shares a specific message from Jesus in the form of a letter to each church. These messages speak about what the church is doing well, where they have missed the mark, and directions on how they can get back on track. Then each church is encouraged to persevere in their faith and loyalty to Jesus. Those who do are promised their reward in God's coming kingdom. Though each message was originally given to a single historical church, they are here in the Bible to offer guidance to all churches today on how we can stay faithful and centered on Jesus and get back on track if we've lost our way. The letter that inspired the window in our church is the last of the seven letters to the church in Laodicea. And as it turns out, it's one of the most challenging of the letters. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Just so you know who this is from. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. How I wish you were one or the other. Compared to a few of other churches that get letters praising their love and devotion to Jesus and his costly way of Discipleship. The church in Laodicea, we hear, has become lukewarm. The fire isn't quite out, but their faith has cooled and their focus has drifted. Why? What's caused them to lose the center? We hear Jesus say, Well, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
hard words. But there's a story behind all of this. You see, Laodicea at its peak was the wealthiest of all cities in Roman Asia, or at least one of them. And it was, at the, it was so wealthy because it was at the junction of, of major trade routes. And in fact, was the banking center for the entire region. On top of this, they, they had their own successful industries. In 61 AD, uh, some years before John wrote this, a massive earthquake devastated all of Central Asia. Turkey still suffers from this problem today. The Roman Emperor sent financial aid to rebuild the churches in the affected areas, and all the cities gratefully accepted. Well, all of them except for Laodicea. They were rich enough, and they didn't need the help. They were more than capable of taking care of things themselves. This attitude of self-reliance, total self-reliance, seems to have worked its way into the church in Laodicea as well. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. Self-reliance is an easy trap to fall into, especially when you live in a place where every material need is met for most people. I agree with the many Christian writers and thinkers who believe that one major reason for the decline of both religion and social cohesion in, in developed Western countries like Canada is because of our enormous prosperity. It's harder to deny your need for God when you're a subsistence farmer getting by season by season than when you live in a comfortable suburban home and can have almost anything your heart desires shipped to you by Amazon the next day. It's also harder to pretend you don't need your neighbors or a community of support when they helped you build your house and got you through the last winter after the crops failed. We don't rely on each other in that same way in Canada today. The problem with this illusion of self-reliance is it seems to work well enough when things are going well, when things are going great. But the minute things change, it becomes clear that we can't really take care of things on our own. And we also find that we can have no one to turn to if we've been trying to do it ourselves the whole way along. Indeed, we may have pushed away anyone who could have helped us. And when we come to a problem we can't solve on our own, we can find ourselves giving up, thinking there is no way forward because we can't see it. When it's just a matter of there not being a way forward without trusting the help of another stronger than us. But this isn't just an issue for people who aren't a part of the church today. It's also an issue for those of us who are. The letter to the church of Laodicea in Revelation reminds us that every church is affected and shaped by the culture around it. If we are born and live in a culture of individualism and self-reliance, we should not be surprised our churches here in Canada are also prone to that same individualism and sense of self-reliance. And if it was easy for the Laodicean Christians to grow lukewarm and to rely on themselves rather than Jesus, then it will be just as easy for us. Indeed, it's always easy for human beings to turn a movement centered on Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord, into just another human institution, club or society, 
One that's driven not by the mission, but by the need to keep the lights on and the doors open. And one that's not powered by the Holy Spirit, but by our own human expertise and effort. To any church in that situation, or at risk of sliding into that situation, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. And white robes to clothe you and keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus says, remember that I have given you everything you need to be my church. So come and receive. Yet Jesus also knows that we are slow of heart. Slow to trust, slow to turn to him, even when it becomes clear that we cannot do it on our own. And so he follows this up by saying those words. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person. And they with me. This remains his promise to his church in all ages. He's always at the door because, frankly, this is his house. The master's just coming home. But we need to recognize that we need him. We need to open that door. We need to keep working with him, to keep him at the center of what we're doing. And really, we can do that when we have the humility, the recognition of our own limitations, that we absolutely cannot do this without him. And we cannot do it in our own strength. But that's always been the case. The good news of the gospel we find on Easter begins with people who realize, man, we can't do anything without Jesus. We have this story on the road to, the road to Emmaus. These disciples, they're running away. Jesus, as far as they're concerned, as far as anybody would be concerned, he's gone. All of this only made sense when he was with us. And if he's gone, then we've got to get out of here. But then a stranger approaches them on the road and explains to them what all this means. And something in their hearts catches fire, that fire that had been put out. And when they get where they're going, they beg him. They beg him to come in. Stay with us, for it's nearly evening, and the day is almost over. And Jesus comes in, sits down at the table, Gives thanks as he always did, breaks bread and eats with them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And suddenly it was all possible again. Suddenly, we can go and do this. Let's run back to Jerusalem and tell the others the same thing. Because he lives, it actually is possible. It is possible. That is the promise that Jesus makes. Indeed, in this letter... To the church in Laodicea in Revelation comes this remarkable promise. Jesus says, to the one who overcomes, you might say to the one who presses on, who perseveres, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We welcome him in. We accept that we cannot do this without him that we 
work with him, to build everything we do around him, to acknowledge that we can do nothing apart from him. And we have this promise. And we can become a part of what he's doing. This bringing God's reign on earth as it is in heaven. This transformation of the world. And we'll sit down beside him on the throne when the world's made new. Every tear is white from every eye. And all people are made one. This is part of our vision. And at the start of the new church year, it's a good time to renew our focus on that vision we've been given. It's up here, in many ways, every Sunday, in that window, the woman named Hannah left to this church. Jesus stands at the door, knocking. Let us let him in, today and every day. Amen. We give thanks to God for all his amazing work in our lives. We respond with our offering. You can can make an offering right now, or you can also make an offering through PayPal on the church website.